The following audio is from Community Bible Church in Nashville, Tennessee. For more information about our church, please visit us online at cbcnashville.org. Our scripture reading today will be taken from Psalms 24, verses 1 through 10. The King of Glory, a Psalm of David. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he hath founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob, Selah. Lift up your heads, O ye gates, and be lifted up, O ye o ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Selah. You can have a seat. I have to pivot just a little bit from my notes. The, the, the song, the hymn that we just sang, Behold Our God, the, uh, the first time, uh, I know I've mentioned this before, but the first time I ever heard that song, it was in a, a stadium full of, of men at a, a, a pastor's conference and thousands of, of people singing, Behold Our God. Uh, just there's something wonderful just being among the saints and singing praises to our God. There's something wonderful about, about being here this morning with my brothers and sisters singing praises to our great and holy and just and mighty and righteous God. And just it, it made me want to just read some scripture here before we, before we get into our actual text this morning. One of my favorite passages as I love singing with you here on Sunday mornings and I love the opportunity to sit in a stadium full of, of Christians and hear the voice, everyone singing, it's just a small foretaste of what awaits us in glory. It is 7,000 men singing pales in comparison to what we, the worship service that we will have in heaven. So one of my favorite passages is Revelation 5, as John is distraught, wondering who's going to be worthy to take the scroll, and then Jesus Christ comes, who's worthy to take the scroll. And it says, and they sang a new song, saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you are slain. By your blood, you ransom people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. 
and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who is slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. I hope when you come together, when we come together on Sunday mornings, even when it's just a few of us, that you are filled with the excitement of what awaits us, of what Christ has done for us in the already, but rejoicing in that not yet that we look forward to as we get to join the choir of myriads and myriads and thousands and thousands and sing praises to our King. Well, now we can get to our, to our actual message this morning. Um, before I do, just because it's a, a bit of a different Sunday and that right now it's a, if you've noticed on our third Sundays, we're having family services, so uh, the kids are in here. So I just wanted to take an opportunity to uh, kind of involve the kids in our congregation. So if you're, if you're one of the kids in our congregation, how about you, if you want, you can come up front here. I'm just going to talk to you guys for a minute. I'm going to get down here. You guys can come up. We're just going to talk about, the, about what we're going to talk about today in the sermon so you guys can understand a little bit more. Do you, does that sound good, Coco? Okay, do you want to have... I'm three years old. You're three years old? That's wonderful. So who can tell me, I just, just hold it to one, one of the like, miracles that Jesus did? Serenity? He healed somebody. He healed lots of people, right, Ezra? He opened up the water for the, for the, um, the Red Sea. I love that you went to the Old Testament for it yeah. because you know what? Jude says that it was Jesus who brought a people out of the land. So you're exactly right. He opened up the Red Sea so that the people of Israel could cross through on the dry land. Beck? He um, rose Lazarus from the dead. He rose Lazarus from the dead. Reese? Someone's daughter from the dead, Elijah or Ezra. Why do you have Ezra's name tag on, Elijah? <laughs> he, he healed the paralytic. Very good. Last one, Elijah. Just kidding. Sarah had, um, Sarah had a baby at 99 years old. Uh, another Old Testament reference, right? The, where, yeah, the, the child of promise. She was far beyond the age to be able to, to, to have children, and yet God gave her the promised child, Abraham and Sarah. Very good. Can you imagine what it would be like if Jesus were physically here right now? Can you imagine if he was standing over here? Would that be amazing? Yeah. Well, today in our story, we're actually going to talk about how it's far better for us 
that he is seated in heaven right now. He told his disciples that when he, that he was about to leave them and they were sad about it, but he said, it's actually to your advantage that I go away. What's, what's an advantage? What does it mean to be to your advantage? Yeah, to, a head start to something that is better is better than maybe where you're at. Like, yeah, you, you're you're a head, got a head start. So Jesus told his disciples, "It's actually to your advantage that I go away." So today in the sermon, we're going to talk about why it's better that Jesus ascended and sits at his Father's right hand. Why that's better right now than if he were actually standing here. Does that sound crazy? Okay, you can go ahead and go back to your seats. You pay attention. Let's see if we can figure out why it's better. Well, uh, if you want to find your way to the book of Acts, I would invite you to turn there this morning. And we've been going through uh, the, uh, John's gospel, and we just wrapped up John's gospel last Sunday, and as we kind of look forward to what the next series would be, I couldn't get away from the idea of doing a mini-series in Acts, because it's, it's so important for us to see the continuing work of Jesus in his church. And we're going to be looking in this kind of short four-week mini-series uh, at four kind of big ideas in the, in the introduction to Acts First, the ascension of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the coming of the Holy Spirit, the foundation of the apostles' teaching in the church, and the communion of the saints. And in Acts 1.1, Luke, uh, who is writing the book of Acts, Luke, who wrote the gospel uh, according to Luke, he writes in, in the first verse that he has already dealt in his previous book with all that Jesus began to do and teach. He doesn't say all that Jesus did and taught, all bases all that Jesus began to do and teach. And the implication there is that he is about to write more about what Jesus is doing. So again, this, this little mini-series is looking at what Jesus is doing in the life of, of his church, the continuing work of Christ in his church. With that, let's read Acts 1, 1 through 11. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands to the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. 
And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Let's pray. Father, as we just thank you for your word, I pray that as we come before it this morning that you would just bless us through the reading of your word, through um, the, the study of your word. Father, I, I pray that you would just deeply impress upon us the beauty of Christ and his work on our behalf and his work, Father, that didn't end at Calvary but continues. Father, strengthen us as we come before your word uh, to, uh, through the power of your Holy Spirit, I pray that you would help us to understand it, help us to believe it, and help us to obey it. Father, help us to be a people who are uh, truly shaped, formed, transformed more and more into your image as you wash us with your word. So I just pray in that regard that uh, it would be a blessing to us. Help me in my weakness to speak only what you would have me to speak. I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we get into uh, this series this, this morning, I just want to kind of touch on a couple things from the passage itself, and then we're going to deal more broadly with the ascension. And it, there, there's kind of two aspects as we think about Jesus' humiliation coming down, being uh, incarnate, being born of a virgin, being, as Galatians 4 says, being born under the law. Even though he's the supreme lawgiver, he places himself humbly under it so that he can fulfill the law, that he can fulfill all righteousness on our behalf. He, as Philippians says, he humbled himself even to the point of death, and at that, death on a cross. Well, now we're dealing with his exaltation. Because he completely did everything that the Father sent him to do, he is exalted on high. And part of that is his ascension. He, he ascends in the sight of his disciples to glory, to heaven. And he sits, as scripture says, he sits at the Father's right hand. He is exalted on high. And th those two things, the ascension and what we call oftentimes the session where he's sitting at the Father's right hand, it's hard to take kind of, uh, see the one without the other. It logically goes from one to the other. So as we talk about it this morning, kind of talk about both aspects. But first, just a couple things from our text before we get to the ascension. In verse 3, Luke, Luke records that the resurrection of of Christ, uh, that he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs. As you look at various translations, you might have many convincing proofs, many infallible proofs, many certain proofs. Luke says that he appeared to them over a, a period of 40 days. There, there is no doubt that Jesus rose from the dead. 
and he spends 40 days in and out of the company of his disciples and more, as Paul records in 1 Corinthians 15, even appearing to over 500 at one point where Paul could write to the Corinthian church and say, even now you can go find these witnesses. Even now you can go find people who saw Jesus alive, who saw the marks of death, the marks of crucifixion on him. You can go and find them now. It is a, it's a fact. And over the course of 40 days, he presented himself many infallible proofs of his resurrection. That alone should just thrill our, our hearts, thrill our souls. Because even though we don't have the advantage possibly that we might see it of being back at that time and being able, as Thomas did, to see that the holes in his hands and in his side we see Christ by faith. We receive him by faith. And as we looked at a few weeks ago, Jesus, or maybe it was just last week, if it was a few weeks ago, Jesus says that uh, we are blessed. He, he bestows a blessing on us for, before seeing him through faith. The resurrection is a fact. Then, uh, just kind of quickly touching on this one, in verses 6 through 8, the, the disciples, they're walking along with Jesus, and they ask him, well, is this the time that you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And kind of what's funny about this is Luke had just said that he had spent, Jesus had spent time with his disciples talking to them about the kingdom of God. And they ask him this question that's just full of errors. Is this the time that you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus doesn't really answer their question other than just saying, it's not for you to know. St they were still looking for kind of a, a, a political overthrow that the nation of Israel, the kingdom of Israel would, but, would be restored. But Jesus is about to tell them, no, the kingdom that I am concerned about begins in Jerusalem, expands to Judea, to Samaria, and to the utter ends of the earth. It is not just the kingdom of Israel. But he says that time is not for you to know, but I have a mission for you nonetheless. A mission for you to be my witnesses. For them to go out and testify to who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. People that we've been looking at through our study of John Men like Thomas, who said, I will not believe unless I see. And then he saw and he exclaimed, my Lord and my God. Thomas got to go and testify about who Jesus is, that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. Peter, who denied Jesus three times and yet was restored by his Savior, brought back in. That Peter gets to go, as we saw last week, even to, the, to his death, he gets to go and be a witness to Jesus Christ. And this, this framework that Jesus gives really becomes the framework of the entire book of Acts as, as he charges them that they will be his witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. 
that is exactly how the book of Acts unfolds. Because you see the gospel of Jesus Christ go to these various people groups. It begins in Jerusalem. Next week, we'll see the day of Pentecost and the Holy Spirit coming and thousands coming to faith and the church growing begins in Jerusalem, goes into Judea, includes even Samaria, Samaria, the the capital city of the northern kingdom when Judah and Israel split Israel in the north and Judah in the south and Samaria, their capital, even to Samaria. Oh, but not even just ending there. It's going to go, it's going to expand and you're going to take it even unto the Gentiles, even unto the end of the earth. So as you, as you read Acts, you get to see that even to the point of the last handful of chapters of Acts where, where Paul is being transported slowly but surely to eventually get to Rome. And then the rest of the story is beautiful because somehow it ended up here in Nashville. And we sit here this morning worshiping our God. So the big question we have to answer then is, how does Jesus leaving help his church? And as I mentioned to the kids, John 16, Jesus told his disciples that it's to their advantage that he goes away. And there's that that conversation in the upper room where they're saddened that Jesus is, is talking to them about leaving. And he says, You'll be sad for a time, but then your, your joy will be made full. And we think of, we saw some of that joy in just the resurrected Lord being brought back to them. We saw joy as he appeared to them in, in, that, in the room and revealed himself to them. And yet there's a joy that they have, even as we'll read in one of the ascension accounts this morning, a joy as they see him ascend into heaven where he is departing from them. But this time, it's not with sorrow in their heart, but they leave rejoicing. But we do, I think, have to struggle with that fact about why, how is it possible that it could be to our advantage that Jesus has left us? Well, we oftentimes think that if I could simply see Jesus, physically see him, if I could hear his voice, if I could talk with him, that would just strengthen and reassure my confidence in him. But it's, it's, so, it's such a sweet thing to see in Acts the very lives of the disciples, because if you, want, if you wonder for just a moment, how could it possibly be to our advantage that Jesus left, all you need to do is look at the disciples. Because as you see them before Jesus ascends, they're kind of this group that's still a little bit lost. Certainly before Jesus rose from the dead, they're hiding out behind locked doors, afraid. Even when they see Jesus, there's still some fear there. There's rejoicing, but there's the next time that we see them, they're still kind of hiding out. Then last week we saw them fishing, which wasn't necessarily that that was wrong that they went fishing. And here today, this question about the kingdom 
there's confusion. But after the ascension and after the, the coming of the Holy Spirit, you see transformation with these disciples. You see men who are no longer afraid but are bold. And when they are afraid, they're, pray, they're asking the church to pray for them that they would be bold. You see, you see the church uh, persecuted for their faith, that they are beaten by the authorities, and yet Acts records for us that they, they went away from that rejoicing that they had been counted worthy to suffer for the name of Christ. You see a transformation in the disciples and in the church. And as, we, as these next few weeks unfold in this sermon series, we will see the church springing to life. So much so that in our fourth week, as we look at the communion of the saints, they're, they're sharing all that they have in common with one another. They're, they're devoting themselves daily to prayer and to, and to the word, to loving one another, to caring for one another. All, that's all you have to do to wonder how is it possible that Jesus leaving could be better. You just look at the history. And it's written all over these pages that is to their advantage. So we'll look at some of that this morning to see exactly how that plays out. One important aspect as we think of Jesus being exalted, uh, ascending, sitting at the Father's right hand, as we think of that, what we've, what we've come to see is the threefold offices of Christ as prophet, priest, and king. And next week, we're going to look more at Jesus as our prophet as we look at the Holy Spirit coming. Today, we're going to look really kind of more exclusively at him being priest. I wanted to talk also more about him as king, and we, we kind of covered that in our songs today. I already know I'm long-winded, and I couldn't cover both priest and king today. Uh, but he is our prophet, priest, and king. And just a couple things that might be helpful for you to think, think through this. A, a prophet brings the word of God to his people. So the prophet is a representative of God to the people, where the priest is a representative of the people to God. And that's really what we'll see as, as we look closer at the ascension. The priest represents the people to God. And a king, as we've sung about this morning and read about, he, he rules and protects God's people. He restrains and conquers all his and our enemies. Look with me at Luke as we see Luke's other account of the ascension in Luke 24, right at the end of, of uh, his gospel. Luke, in writing these two accounts, uh, kind of does a, a very... Uh, something you'll see in the Old Testament writings when you have two, uh, two accounts that back up to each other, there's usually an overlapping detail. There's an overlapping detail that the author gives, and this is exactly what Luke does. And we see in this account of the ascension just a, a little bit more detail, and then and we'll talk about both accounts together. But I want to read uh, from Luke 24, verses 44 to the end. Then he, Jesus, said to them, 
These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed to his people or in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things and behold, I'm sending the promise of my father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And he led them out as far as Bethany and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. Well, this, this detail that Luke gives us here is important. It, it shows us this priestly office of our Savior, of Jesus Christ, as he is ascending, Luke says that he raises his hands to, the con- to his disciples and blesses them. He gives them a, a benediction. This is what the priest would do, as we see in Leviticus 9, after the priest would go and make all of the required sacrifices, he would come out and lift his hands over the people and bless them. This is quite typically probably that, that benediction that we receive uh, from in Numbers 6. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Jesus is ascending and does this very priestly thing for his disciples as he's leaving, as he's going out of their midst, out of their sight. He raises his hands and he blesses them. Hebrews 1 says, After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. As the, much like the, the, high priest after making those sacrifices, after making purification for sins, he ascended on high and sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He gave them this, this benediction. And then Psalm 1, or in Acts 1, 9, the, the detail that we're given there is as Jesus is ascending, he's blessing them, and then a cloud comes and takes him out of their sight This is very, very likely what we oftentimes refer to as the Shekinah glory, the Shekinah cloud. In the worship, in the the temple worship, you can think of when the tabernacle was first set up and everything was in place, the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle so much so that Moses and Aaron couldn't even be inside. The same thing happens when, the, when Solomon dedicates the temple. The, the glory of the Lord fills the temple. And, no, and they couldn't be in the temple. You think of Ezekiel and Ezekiel's vision of the glory, this, the cloud, the glory of the Lord departing from the temple because of the people's sin. Well, here we have our great high priest, Jesus Christ, ascending, blessing his disciples, and the cloud comes and takes him out of their sight. He is indeed our great high priest ascending on high 
even in the, the glory of the Lord. As he ascends on high, it's important then for us to think, okay, why? Again, why is he ascending on high? What exactly is he accomplishing? Well, first, he opened the access to the heavenly kingdom, which had been closed by Adam. He opened the access to the heavenly kingdom, which had been closed by Adam. Consider this. Consider Eden. Adam and Eve, they take of the fruit, they eat, they sin against God, they rebel against God. And their first reaction, their first action isn't to run to him when they hear him walking in the garden. Their first reaction isn't to run to him and beg for forgiveness. No, it's to hide. They run from him. They hide from him. They realize that he is holy, 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 and they are completely sinful. They are afraid of God. But what Christ did, he steps in where Adam failed, and through his perfect, his perfect righteousness, his perfect obedience, his perfect sacrifice, his perfect atonement, he opens the way again. Again, I have to quote from Hebrews here, Hebrews 10. This week as I was preparing, I, I read through Hebrews. There, there's just so much ascension language in Hebrews. I would encourage you uh, just to, to read through it with, with this in mind. But Hebrews 10, verses 19 through 22 says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. This is... This is what Adam and Eve needed in the garden. They were afraid. They were terrified of God because they realized their sinfulness. Well, in Christ, we are washed. We are sprinkled clean by his blood. He has, he has purified, he, uh, purified us. He has sanctified us. So that as the author of Hebrews says, we can draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. That... That's good news, that we can draw near to God with a pure heart, with full assurance of faith. We struggle with our assurance. It's, it's a common thing for us to struggle with insurance. But one of the wonderful thing, one of one of the w wonderful truths that was kind of rescued through the Reformation is the the great the great truth of our assurance that we can have assurance with God because of what Christ has done. That our life isn't one of, of penance and con continued misery where we're just hoping that we can eke out enough obedience, enough righteousness for God to finally say, okay, I accept you. We can have confidence in Jesus Christ who stands for us. In fact, Paul writes in Ephesians 2, he says that we are raised up with him and seated 
And God seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. We are, as I repeat so many times, one of the most common phrases that describes the Christian is in Christ. We are in him. So much so that Paul can say that God seated us in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. As Christ sits, he ascended on high, physically ascended, went from this place to that place. He sits in this position of authority as our, as our king and as our high priest. We are as good as being there with him. We are in him. God has seated, seated us in the heavenly places so that, as Peter writes, we have this uh, hope that in the here and now, as we think, man, I just don't feel like I'm seated in the heavenly places with Christ. I do wish that Jesus could be brought back down so I could see him. I'm having trouble realizing how this could possibly be to my advantage that he is in heaven right now, physically there, when I wish he could be physically here. But Peter points that, that that is the essence of hope. And he says that he calls our hope a living hope because Jesus is alive and physically there. And he says it's, it's such a hope that we, we have an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. That this is, this is the heartbeat of the believer that we recognize that in Christ, as he is seated in heaven, as our high priest, as our king, as our prophet, that we have a hope that can't be taken away, one where thieves cannot break in and steal, one that moths and rust cannot destroy. We have a great hope. As our priest, Jesus stands even now as our advocate and intercessor Again, I, we're reading a number of passages this morning, but I'd like to read Romans 8. As he stands as our advocate and our intercessor, Romans 8, 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring a, a, any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Jesus died never to die again. He's the firstborn from the dead. He's the perfect priest who had, who had no better sacrifice to offer than himself. And that same perfect high priest who conquered sin and death now stands as our advocate, interceding for us so that not a single charge can be brought to our account that he doesn't, say, paid in full. He is our advocate, our intercessor. 
He secures our eternal inheritance by his very presence in that throne room. And what's, what's amazing about this is we think about the ascension, it's, it's not that the Son of God never had that position. The Son of God always had that position as being present in the throne room. But in the ascension, this was the first time that our mediator, the God-man, ascended to that position. Where now we have a high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses because he has shared in our humanity. We have a mediator, a man who stands as our representative before God. He is the God-man. He, as God, touches this side of the Godhead, and as man touches this, he is, he is that perfect mediator who brings us together. Again, in Hebrews 6, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as our forerunner on our behalf. As you read through Hebrews, that's the, the language is, as we remember reading about Moses receiving the instructions for the tabernacle on Mount Sinai, he was receiving, he was having visions of the heavenly reality and in a small scale recreating that on earth so God, so God could dwell among his people. Well, Jesus, as our great high priest, has entered into the reality. He has entered into the very presence of God to be the mediator on our behalf. And I love that. I love the language from Hebrews 6. It's one of my favorite verses. That this hope that is ours is as, is as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. A sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. The disciples didn't have that until Jesus ascended and the Spirit descended. They didn't have that. But we, along with them, at this place in time where Jesus is our advocate, our high priest in the holy place of heaven, we can have that sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. We can have that confidence. So as we think about this, we think about how the, the ascension of Christ, his session at the Father's right hand, and as we'll see next week, the coming of the Holy Spirit, how that shaped the disciples, how it transformed them from the account we have in the Gospels uh, to the account we have in Acts. The logical question then to ask is how does it shape us? How does the does the fact that Jesus rose from the dead and ascended on high as our God-man, as our mediator, how does that impact us? My, my uh, older brother has had the opportunity to go to Israel many times. Uh, he, leads, he leads small groups there from his school and he gets to walk them around the Holy Land. And I've, I've never had the opportunity to go, but I've talked with plenty of people who have, and they talk about how it's exciting to think about 
walking in, that same, in the same places where Jesus walked, seeing these areas where Jesus did these things. That's great, and that's good. But none of us need that experience to know that Jesus reigns on high and is our advocate. It is far better for us to recognize and to realize the truth that he sits on high even now interceding for us as our high priest, reigning as king of kings and lord of lords. It's far better for us to recognize that than to have him here with us or than to have the experience of saying, I'm, I've walked where Jesus walked. It's, so far, it's far better for us to meditate on those things. As application, this is be, we'll close with this, Colossians. Colossians chapter 3. This is the application that Paul writes when he considers the ascended Christ, when he considers that Jesus is in the holy place, the true holy place in heaven. He says this, beginning with verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are, that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God, Set your, mind, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. And these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, 
giving thanks to God the Father through him. Considering Christ, considering that he sits on high as your priest, as your advocate, as your mediator, as your king, this is what that looks like in, our, in the Christian's life. We look to him and we, we consider him and, and we put our minds, our thoughts on those heavenly things rather than on these earthly things. We stop clinging to what is here and now. We stop clinging to all the things that seem to offer us hope in the here and now. All those things that are our earthly comforts. We put them we, we see them in their proper place. They are temporary blessings of God. And yet so often we, we'll even turn those blessings into idols. But they, as blessings, are only a temporary taste of the inheritance that is ours in Christ where he has gone. He is gone as our forerunner. Well, next week, as we look at the coming of the Holy Spirit, we'll see that even, even though Christ sits on high, because of the coming of the Holy Spirit, he can say to his disciples, behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. He has not left us as orphans. It is a great benefit and advantage to us that he sits enthroned on high that he is not physically present with us here. But that does not mean that he's not actively working in our lives. And we'll, we'll look more closely at that next week. As we move to the communion table to enjoy the Lord's Supper together, I would encourage you, that as we consider Christ, as we consider that we are about to partake of, of the, the bread and the cup together, that it is a picture of our union with Christ, that we are spiritually feeding on him, that he is nourishing us, that we are enjoying all the benefits that he has given us as his children. But if you're here this morning and you don't have, if you don't believe in Christ, if you don't believe that he is indeed the, the Son of God sent from, sent from God to take on flesh, to fulfill all obedience on our behalf, to fulfill the law, to die, to make perfect atonement, for perfect payment for our sins, to raise on the third day, to ascend on high where he sits even now. If, if you don't believe that, we would ask that you not uh, partake of this table together. We don't want it to confuse you. We don't want you to think that this somehow saves you. This doesn't save us, but it is a family meal that we enjoy together. Also, just as we fence the table, if you are in this place where you see Christ and you can kind of understand his beauty, but not to the point where you are willing to give up everything else for him, if you cling to your earthly things, you cling to sin, and you think you can enjoy both worlds, both sin and Christ, 
I would also ask you not to take this table. But if you struggle against your sin, our message here is not that you stop sinning, but you hate your sin. You hate, like Paul says in Romans 7, that you do the very thing that you don't want to do. You hate it, but you love Christ. This table's for you. If you sit here today and you're even, you're just in doubt and you're wondering, how can it be that Jesus would die for a wretched sinner like me? He says, this table is for you. He wants you to enjoy it. He wants you to taste and see that he is good. Let me pray, and we'll take this together. Father, I just pray that as we come before uh, the Lord's Supper, that you would help us to receive it in faith, that you would help us to receive it recognizing our unworthiness, because we only take it because Christ is worthy. Father, help us to, again, receive it by faith. Help us to feast on Christ, to be nourished in him, to know that this is a representation of of what we have proclaimed here this morning, what he has done for us. We praise you for your word. Strengthen us and encourage us. Help us to more and more find our delight and our desire in you to more and more flee from those things which so so easily cling to us, those, those sins that cause us to stumble and fall all over ourselves and more and more live for Christ and more and more cling to him. Father, we just pray all of these things in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this audio presentation from Community Bible Church. For more information, please visit us at 6005 Edmondson Pike in Nashville, Tennessee, or online at cbcnashville.org.